Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I continue the story, Great Expectations, by Charles Dickens. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 6 My state of mind regarding the pilfering from which I had been so unexpectedly exonerated, did not impel me to frank disclosure, but I hope it had some dregs of good at the bottom of it. 
I do not recall that I felt any tenderness of conscience in reference to Mrs. Joe, when the fear of being found out was lifted off me. But I loved Joe, perhaps for no better reason in those early days than because the dare fellow let me love him, and as to him, my inner self was not so easily composed. It was much upon my mind, particularly when I first saw him looking about for his file, that I ought to tell Joe the whole truth. Yet I did not, and for the reason that I mistrusted that if I did, he would think me worse than I was. The fear of losing Joe's confidence, and of thenceforth sitting in the chimney corner at night, staring drearily at my forever lost companion and friend, tied up my tongue. I morbidly represented to myself that if Joe knew it, I never afterwards could see him at the fireside feeling his fair whisker without thinking that he was meditating on it. That if Joe knew it, I never afterwards could see him glance, however casually, at yesterday's meat or pudding when it came on today's table, without thinking that he was debating whether I had been in the pantry. That if Joe knew it, and at any subsequent period of our joint domestic life remarked that his bear was flat or thick, the conviction that he suspected tar in it would bring a rush of blood to my face. In a word, I was too cowardly to do what I knew to be right, as I had been too cowardly to avoid doing what I knew to be wrong. I had had no intercourse with the world at that time, and I imitated none of its many inhabitants who act in this manner. Quite an untaught genius, I made the discovery of the line of action for myself. As I was sleepy before we were far away from the prison ship, Joe took me on his back again and carried me home. He must have had a tiresome journey of it, for Mr. Wopsle, being knocked up, was in such a very bad temper that if the church had been thrown open, he would have probably excommunicated the whole expedition, beginning with Joe and myself. In his lay capacity, he persisted in sitting down in the damp to such an insane extent that when his coat was taken off to be dried at the kitchen fire, the circumstantial evidence on his trousers would have hanged him if it had been a capital offence. By that time, I was staggering on the kitchen floor like a little drunkard through having been newly set upon my feet, and through having been fast asleep, and through waking the heat and lights and noise of tongues. As I came to myself, with the aid of a heavy thump between the shoulders, and the restorative exclamation, yeah, was there ever such a boy as this, for my sister, I found Joe telling them about the convict's confession, and all the visitors suggesting different ways by which he had gotten into the pantry. Mr. Pumblechook, made out, after carefully surveying the premises, that he had first got upon the roof of the forge, and had then got upon the roof of the house, and had then let himself down the kitchen chimney by a rope made of his bedding cut into strips, and, as Mr. Pumblechook was very positive, and drove his own chase cart over everybody, it was agreed that it must be so. Mr. Wopsle indeed wildly cried out no, with the feeble malice of a tired man, that as he had no theory and no coat on, he was unanimously set at naught, not to mention his smoking hard behind as he stood with his back to the kitchen fire to draw the damp out, which was not calculated to inspire confidence. This was all I heard that night before my sister clutched me 
as a slumberous offence to the company's eyesight, and assisted me up to bed with such a strong hand that I seemed to have fifty boots on and to be dangling them all against the edges of the stairs. My state of mind, as I have described it, began before I was up in the morning and lasted long after the subject had died out, and had ceased to be mentioned, saving on exceptional occasions. Chapter 7 At the time when I stood in the churchyard reading the family tombstones, I had just enough learning to be able to spell them out. My construction, even of their simple meaning, was not very correct, for I read Wife of the Above as a complimentary reference to my father's exaltation to a better world, and if any one of my deceased relations had been referred to as Below, I have no doubt I should have formed the worst opinion of that member of the family. Neither were my notions of the theological positions to which my catechism bound me at all accurate, for I have a lively remembrance that I supposed my declaration that I was to walk in the same all the days of my life laid me under an obligation always to go through the village from our house in one particular direction and never to vary it by turning down by the wheelwrights or up by the mill. When I was old enough, I was to be apprenticed to Joe, and until I could assume that dignity, I was not to be what Mrs. Joe called pompied, or as I render it, pampered. Therefore, I was not only odd boy about the forge, but if any neighbor happened to want an extra boy to frighten birds or pick up stones or do any such job, I was favored with the employment. In order, however, that our superior position might not be compromised thereby, a money box was kept on the kitchen mantel shelf into which it was publicly made that all my earnings were dropped. I have an impression that they were to be contributed eventually towards the liquidation of a national debt, but I know I had no hope of any personal participation in the treasure. Mr. Wopsle's great-aunt kept an evening school in the village. That is to say, she was a ridiculous old woman of limited means and unlimited infirmity. He used to go to sleep from six to seven every evening in the society of youth who paid tuppence per week each for the improving opportunity of seeing her do it. She rented a small cottage and Mr. Wopsle had the room upstairs where we students used to overhear him reading aloud in a most dignified and terrific manner and occasionally bumping on the ceiling. There was a fiction that Mr. Wopsle examined the scholars once a quarter. What he did on those occasions was to turn up his cuffs, stick up his hair, and give us Mark Antony's oration over the body of Caesar. This was always followed by Collins' Ode on the Passions, wherein I particularly venerated Mr. Wopsle as revenge, throwing his blood-stained sword and thunder down and taking the war-denouncing trumpet with a withering look. It was not with me then, as it was in later life, when I fell into the society of the Passions, and compared them with Collins and Wopsell, rather to the disadvantage of both men. Mr. Wopsell's great-aunt, besides keeping this educational institution, kept in the same room a little general shop. She had no idea what stock she had or what the price of anything in it was, but there was a little greasy memorandum book kept in a drawer, which served as a catalogue of prices, and by this oracle, Biddy arranged all the shop transaction 
Biddy was Mr. Wopsle's great-aunt's granddaughter. I confess myself quite unequal to the working out of the problem what relation she was to Mr. Wopsle. She was an orphan like myself. Like me, too, had been brought up by hand. She was most noticeable, I thought, in respect of her extremities, for her hair always wanted brushing, her hands always wanted washing, and her shoes always wanted mending and pulling up at heel. This description must be received with a weekday limitation. On Sundays, she went to church, elaborated. Much of my unassisted self, and more by the help of Biddy than Mr. Wopsle's great-aunt, I struggled through the alphabet as if it had been a bramble bush, getting considerably worried and scratched by every letter. After that I fell among those thieves, the nine figures, who seemed every evening to do something new to disguise themselves in baffle recognition. But, at last, I began, in a purblind, groping way, to read, write, and cipher on the very smallest scale. One night, I was sitting in the chimney corner with my slate, expending great efforts on the production of a letter to Joe. I think it must have been a full year after our hunt upon the marshes, for it was a long time after, and it was winter and a hard frost. With an alphabet on the hearth at my feet for reference, I contrived in an hour or two to print and smear this epistle. My dear Joe, I hope you are quite well. I hope I shall soon be able for to teach you, Joe, and then will sure be so good, and when I am prentice to you, Joe, what larks and leave me, affection, Pip. There was no indispensable necessity for my communicating with Joe by letter, inasmuch as he sat beside me and we were alone. But I delivered this written communication, slate and all, with my own hand, and Joe received it as a miracle of erudition. I say, Pip, old chap, cried Joe, opening his blue eyes wide. What a scholar you are, ain't you? I should like to be, said I, glancing at the slate as he held it with a misgiving that the writing was rather hilly. Why, here's a J, said Joe, and an O equal to anything. Here's a J and an O and a J-O, Joe. I had never heard Joe read aloud to any greater extent than this monosyllable, and I had observed at church last Sunday, when I accidentally held our prayer book upside down, that it seemed to suit his convenience quite as well as if it had been all right. Wishing to embrace the present occasion of finding out whether in teaching Joe, I should have to begin quite at the beginning, I said, Ah, but read the rest, Joe. The rest, eh, Pip? said Joe, looking at it with a slow, searching eye. One, two, three. Why, there's three J's and three O's, and three J-O. Joe's. In it, Pip. I leaned over Joe, and with the aid of my forefinger read him the whole letter. Astonishing, said Joe, when I had finished. You are a scholar. How do you spell Gargery, Joe? I asked him, with a modest patronage. I don't spell it at all, said Joe. But supposing you did? It can't be supposed, said Joe, though I'm uncommon fond of reading, too. Are you, Joe? Uncommon. Give me, said Joe, a good book, 
or a good newspaper, but sit me down for a good fire, and I ask no better. Lord, he continued, after rubbing his knees a little. When you do come to a J and an O, and says you, here at last, it's a J-O, Joe. How interesting reading is. I derived from this that Joe's education, like steam, was yet in its infancy. Pursuing the subject, I inquired, Didn't you ever go to school, Joe, when you were as little as me? No, Pip. Why didn't you ever go to school, Joe, when you were as little as me? Well, Pip, said Joe, taking up the poker and settling himself to his usual occupation when he was thoughtful of slowly raking the fire between the lower bars, I'll tell you. My father, Pip, he were given to drink, and when he were overtook with drink, he hammered away at my mother, most unmerciful. It were almost the only hammering he did, indeed, excepting at myself, and he hammered at me with a vigour only to be equalled by the vigour with which he didn't hammer at his anvil. You're listening and understanding, Pip. Yes, Joe. Consequence, my mother and me, we ran away from my father several times. And then my mother, she'd go out to work and she'd say, Joe, she'd say, now please God, you shall have some schooling, child. And she'd put me to school. But my father were that good in his heart that he couldn't bear to be without us. So he'd come with a most tremendous crowd and make such a row at the doors of the houses where we was, that they used to be obligated to have no more to do with us and to give us up to him. And then he took us home and hammered us. Which you see, Pip, said Joe, pausing in his meditative raking of the fire and looking at me, were a drawback on my learning. Certainly, poor Joe. Though mind you, Pip, said Joe, with a judicial touch or two of the poker on the top bar, rendering onto all their due and maintaining equal justice betwixt man and man, my father were that good in his heart, don't you see? I didn't see, but I didn't say so. Well, Joe pursued, somebody must keep the pot a-boiling, Pip, or the pot won't boil, don't you know? I saw that and said so. Consequence, my father didn't make objections to my going to work. So I went to work at my present calling, which were his too, if he would have followed it. And I worked terrible hard, I assure you, Pip. In time, I were able to keep him and kept him till he went off. And it were my intentions to have had put upon his tombstone that whatsoever the failings on his part, remember, reader, he were that good in his heart. Joe recited this couplet with such manifest pride and careful perspicuity that I asked him if he had made it himself. I made it, said Joe, my own self. I made it in a moment. It was like striking out a horseshoe complete in a single blow. I never was so much surprised in all my life. Couldn't credit my own head, to tell you the truth. Hardly believe it were my own head. As I was saying, Pip, it were my intentions to have had it cut over him. But poetry costs money. Cut it how you will, small or large, and it were not done. Not to mention bearers, all the money that could be spared were wanted for my mother. She were in poor health, quite broke. She weren't long a following, poor soul, and her share of peace come round at last. Joe's blue eyes turned a little watery. He rubbed, first one of them and then the other, in a most uncongenial and uncomfortable manner, 
with the round knob on the top of the poker. It were a bit lonesome then, said Joe, living here alone, and I got acquainted with your sister. Now, Pip, Joe looked firmly at me as if he knew I was not going to agree with him. Your sister is a fine figure of a woman. I could not help looking at the fire in an obvious state of doubt. Whatever family opinions or whatever the world's opinions on that subject may be, Pip, your sister is, Joe tapped the top bar with the poker after every word following, a fine figure of a woman. I could think of nothing better to say than, I'm glad you think so, Joe. So am I, returned Joe, catching me up. I am glad I think so, Pip. A little redness or a little matter of bone, here or there, what does it signify to me? I sagaciously observed, if it didn't signify to him, to whom did it signify? Certainly, assented Joe. That's it. You're right, old chap. When I got acquainted with your sister, it were the talk how she was bringing you up by hand. Very kind of her too, all the folks said, and I said, along with all the folks. As to you, Joe pursued, with a countenance expressive of seeing something very nasty indeed. If you could have been aware how small and flabby and mean you was, dear me, you'd have formed the most contemptible opinion of yourself. Not exactly relishing this, I said. Never mind me, Joe. But I did mind you, Pip, he returned with tender simplicity. When I offered to your sister to keep company and to be asked in church at such times as she was willing and ready to come to the forge, I said to her, and bring the poor little child. God bless the poor little child, I said to your sister. There's room for him at the forge. I broke out crying and begging pardon and hugged Joe round the neck, who dropped the poker to hug me and to say, Ever the best of friends, ain't us, Pip? Don't cry, old chap. When this little interruption was over, Joe resumed. Well, you see, Pip, and here we are. That's about where it lights. Here we are. Now, when you take me in hand in my learning, Pip, and I tell you beforehand, I'm awful dull, most awful dull. Mrs. Joe mustn't see too much of what we're up to. It must be done, as I may say, on the sly. And why on the sly? I'll tell you why, Pip. He had taken up the poker again, without which I doubt he could have proceeded in his demonstration. Your sister is given to government. Given to government, Joe? I was startled, for I had some shadowy idea, and I'm afraid I must add hope, that Joe had divorced her in a favour of the Lords of the Admiralty or Treasury. Given to government, said Joe, which I mean to say, the government of you and myself. Oh. And she ain't overpartial to having scholars on the premises, Joe continued, and in particular would not be overpartial to my being a scholar, for fair as I might rise. Like a sort of rebel, don't you see? I was going to retort with an inquiry, and had got as far as why when Joe stopped me. Stay a bit. I know what you are going to say, Pip. Stay a bit. I don't deny that your sister comes the mogul over us now and again. I don't deny that she do throw us backfalls, and that she do drop down upon us heavy. At such times as when your sister is on the rampage, Pip, Joe sank his voice to a whisper and glanced at the door. Candor compels for her to admit that she is a buster. Joe pronounced this word, 
as if it began with at least twelve capital Bs. Why don't I rise? That were your observation when I broke it off, Pip. Yes, Joe. Well, said Joe, passing the poker into his left hand that he might feel his whisker, and I had no hope of him whenever he took to that placid occupation. Your sister's a mastermind. A mastermind. What's that? I asked, in some hope of bringing him to a stand. But Joe was readier with his definition than I had expected, and completely stopped me by arguing circularly and answering with a fixed look. Her. And I ain't a mastermind, Joe resumed, when he had unfixed his look and got back to his whisker. And last of all, Pip, and this I want to say very serious to you, old chap, I see so much in my poor mother of a woman drudging and slaving and breaking her honest heart and never getting no peace in her mortal days, that I'm dead afraid of going wrong in that way, of not doing what's right by a woman. And I'd for rather the two go wrong the other way, I'd be a little inconvenienced myself. I wish it was only me that got put out, Pip. I wish there weren't no tickler for you, old chap. I wish I could take it all myself. But this is the up and down and straight of it, Pip and I hope you'll overlook shortcomings. Young as I was, I believe that I dated a new admiration of Joe from that night. We were equals afterwards, as we've been before. But afterwards, at quiet times, when I sat looking at Joe and thinking about him, I had a new sensation of feeling conscious that I was looking up to Joe in my heart. However, said Joe, rising to replenish the fire, Here's the Dutch clock a work in himself up to being equal to strike eight of them, and she's not home yet. I hope Uncle Pumblechook's mare mayn't have set a forefoot on a piece of ice and gone down. Mrs. Joe made occasional trips with Uncle Pumblechook on market days to assist him in buying such household stuffs and goods as required a woman's judgment, Uncle Pumblechook being a bachelor and reposing no confidences in his domestic servant. This was market day, and Mrs. Joe was out on one of these expeditions. Joe made the fire and swept the hearth, and then we went to the door to listen for the chaise cart. It was a dry, cold night, and the wind blew keenly, and the frost was white and hard. A man would die tonight of lying out in the marshes, I thought. And then I looked at the stars and considered how awful it would be for a man to turn his face up to them as he froze to death and see no help or pity in all the glittering multitude. Here comes the mare, said Joe, ringing like a peal of bells. The sound of her iron shoes upon the hard road was quite musical as she came along at a much brisker trot than usual. We got a chair out, ready for Mrs. Joe's alighting, and stirred up the fire that they might see a bright window, and took a final survey of the kitchen that nothing might be out of its place. When we had completed these preparations, they drove up, wrapped to the eyes. Mrs. Joe was soon landed, and Uncle Pumblechook was soon down too, covering the mare with a cloth. And we were soon all in the kitchen, carrying so much cold air in with us that it seemed to drive all the heat out of the fire. Now, said Mrs. Joe, unwrapping herself with haste and excitement, and throwing her bonnet back on her shoulders where it hung by the strings, this boy ain't grateful this night. He never will be. I looked as grateful as any boy possibly could who was wholly uninformed why he ought to assume that expression. It's only to be hoped, said my sister, that he won't be 
Pompeyed. But I have my fears. She ain't in that line, Mum, said Mr. Pumblechuck. She knows better. She? I looked at Joe, making the motion with my lips and eyebrows. She? Joe looked at me, making the motion with his lips and eyebrows. She? My sister, catching him in the act, he drew the back of his hand across his nose with his usual conciliatory air on such occasions and looked at her. Well, said my sister, in her snappish way, what are you staring at? Is the house afire? Which some individual, Joe politely hinted, mentioned she. And she is a she, I suppose, said my sister, unless you call Miss Havisham a he, and I doubt even if you'll go so far as that. Miss Havisham, uptown, said Joe. Is there any Miss Havisham downtown, returned my sister. She wants this boy to go and play there. And of course he's going, and he had better play there, said my sister, shaking her head at me as an encouragement to be extremely light and sportive, or I'll work him. I had heard of Miss Havisham uptown. Everybody for miles round had heard of Miss Havisham uptown, as an immensely rich and grim lady who lived in a large and dismal house, barricaded against robbers, and who led a life of seclusion. Well, to be sure, said Joe, astounded. I wonder how she came to know Pip. Noodle, cried my sister, who said she knew him. Which some individual, Joe again politely hinted, mentioned that she wanted him to go and play there. And couldn't she ask Uncle Pumblechook if he knew of a boy to go and play there? Isn't it just barely possible that Uncle Pumblechook may be a tenant of hers? And that he may sometimes we won't say quarterly or half-yearly, for that would be requiring too much of you, but sometimes go there to pay his rent. And couldn't she then ask Uncle Pumblechook if he knew of a boy to go and play there? And couldn't Uncle Pumblechook, being always considerate and thoughtful for us, though you may not think it, Joseph, in a tone of the deepest reproach, as if he were the most callous of nephews, then mention this boy, standing, prancing here, which I solemnly declare I was not doing, that I have for ever been a willing slave to? Good again, cried Uncle Pumblechook. Well put, prettily pointed, good indeed. Now, Joseph, you know the case. No, Joseph, said my sister, still in a reproachful manner, while Joe apologetically drew the back of his hand across and across his nose. You do not yet, though you may not think it, know the case. You may consider that you do, you do not, Joseph. For you do not know that Uncle Pumblechook, being sensible that for anything we can tell, this boy's fortune may be made by his going to Miss Havisham's, has offered to take him into town tonight in his own chaise cart, and to keep him tonight, and to take him with his own hands to Miss Havisham's tomorrow morning. And Lord mercy me, cried my sister, casting off her bonnet in sudden desperation. Here I stand, talking to Mayor Mooncalf's with Uncle Pumblechook waiting and the mare catching cold at the door and the boy grimed with crock and dirt from the hair of his head to the sole of his foot. With that, she pounced upon me like an eagle on a lamb. My face was squeezed into wooden bowls and sinks. My head was put under taps of water butts and I was soaked and kneaded and toweled and thumped and harrowed and rasped until I really was quite beside myself. 
I may here remark that I suppose myself to be better acquainted than any living authority, with the rigid effect of a wedding ring passing unsympathetically over the human countenance. When my ablutions were completed, I was put into clean linen of the stiffest character, like a young penitent into sackcloth, and was trussed up in my tightest and fearfulest suit. I was then delivered over to Mr. Pumblechook, who formally received me as if he were the sheriff, and who let off upon me the speech that I knew he had been dying to make all along. Boy, be forever grateful to all friends, but especially unto them which brought you up by hand. Goodbye, Joe. God bless you, Pip, old chap. I had never parted from him before, and what with my feelings and what with soap suds. I could at first see no stars from the chase cart, but they twinkled out one by one without throwing any light on the questions why on earth I was going to play at Miss Havisham's, and what on earth I was expected to play at. Chapter 8 Mr. Pumblechook's premises in the high street of the market town were of a peppercorny and farinaceous character, as the premises of a corn chandler and seedsman should be. It appeared to me that he must be a very happy man indeed, to have so many little drawers in his shop, and I wondered when I peeped into one or two on the lower tiers, as all the tied-up brown paper packets inside, whether the flower seeds and bulbs ever wanted of a fine day to break out of those jails and bloom. It was in the early morning after my arrival that I entertained the speculation. On the previous night, I had been sent straight to bed in an attic with a sloping roof, which was so low in the corner where the bedstead was, that I calculated the tiles as being within a foot of my eyebrows. In the same early morning, I discovered a singular affinity between seeds and corduroys. Mr. Pumblechook wore corduroys, and so did his shopman. And somehow, there was a general air and flavor about the corduroys, so much in the nature of seeds, and a general air and flavor about the seeds, so much in the nature of corduroys, that I hardly knew which was which. The same opportunity served me for noticing that Mr. Pumblechook appeared to conduct his business by looking across the street at the saddler, who appeared to transact his business by keeping his eye on the coachmaker, who appeared to get on in life by putting his hands in his pockets and contemplating the baker, who in his turn folded his arms and stared at the grocer, who stood at his door and yawned to the chemist. The watchmaker, always poring over a little desk with a magnifying glass at his eye, and always inspected by a group of smock frocks poring over him through the glass of his shop window, seemed to be about the only person in the high street whose trade engaged his attention. Mr. Pumblechook and I breakfasted at eight o'clock in the parlour behind the shop, while the shopman took his mug of tea and hunch of bread and butter on a sack of peas in the front premises. I considered Mr. Pumblechook wretched company. Besides being possessed by my sister's idea that a mortifying and penitential character ought to be imparted to my diet, besides giving me as much crumb as possible in combination with as little butter, and putting such a quantity of warm water into my milk that it would have been more candid to have left the milk out altogether. His conversation consisted of nothing but arithmetic. On my politely bidding him good morning, he said pompously, seven times nine, boy. 
And how should I be able to answer, dodged in that way, in a strange place, on an empty stomach? I was hungry. But before I swallowed a morsel, he began a running sum that lasted all through the breakfast. Seven, and four, and eight, and six, and two, and ten, and so on. And after each figure was disposed of, it was as much as I could do to get a bite or a sup before the next came while he sat at his ease, guessing nothing, and eating bacon and hot roll, in, if I may be allowed the expression, a gorging and gourmandizing manner. For such reasons, I was very glad when ten o'clock came and we started for Miss Havisham's, though I was not at all at my ease regarding the manner in which I should acquit myself under that lady's roof. Within a quarter of an hour, we came to Miss Havisham's house, which was of old brick and dismal, and had a great many iron bars to it. Some of the windows had been walled up. Of those that remained, all the lower were rustily barred. There was a courtyard in front, and that was barred, so we had to wait, after ringing the bell, until someone should come to open it. While we waited at the gate, I peeped in. Even then, Mr. Pumblechook said, and fourteen, and I pretended not to hear him, and saw that at the side of the house there was a large brewery, no brewing was going on in it, and none seemed to have gone on for a long time. A window was raised, and a clear voice demanded, What name? To which my conductor replied, Pumblechook. The voice returned, Quite right. And the window was shut again, and a young lady came across the courtyard with keys in her hand. This, said Mr. Pumblechook, is Pip. This is Pip, is it? returned the young lady, who was very pretty and seemed very proud. Come in, Pip. Mr. Pumblechook was coming in also when she stopped him at the gate. Oh, she said, did you wish to see Miss Havisham? If Miss Havisham wished to see me, returned Mr. Pumblechook, discomfited. Ah, said the girl, but you see, she don't. She said it so finally in such an undiscussable way that Mr. Pumblechook, though in a condition of ruffled dignity, could not protest. But he eyed me severely, as if I had done anything to him, and departed with the words reproachfully delivered, Boy, let your behaviour here be a credit unto them which brought you up by hand. I was not free from apprehension that he would come back to propound through the gate, and sixteen. But he didn't. My young conductress locked the gate, and we went across the courtyard. It was paved and clean, but grass was growing in every crevice. The brewery buildings had a little line of communication with it, and the wooden gates of that lane stood open. And all the brewery beyond stood open, away to the high enclosing wall, and it was all empty and disused. The cold wind seemed to blow colder here than outside the gate, and it made a shrill noise in howling in and out at the open sides of the brewery, like the noise of wind in the rigging of a ship at sea. She saw me looking at it, and she said, You could drink without hurt all the strong beer that's brewed there now, boy. I should think I could, miss, said I, in a shy way. Better not try to brew beer there now, or it would turn out sour, boy. Don't you think so? It looks like it, miss. Not that anybody means to try, she added, for that's all done with and the place will stand as idle as it is till it falls. As to strong beer, there's enough of it in the cellars already to drown the manor house. 
Is that the name of this house, miss? One of its names, boy. It has more than one then, miss? One more. Its other name was Satis, which is Greek or Latin or Hebrew or all three, or all one to me, for enough. Enough house, said I. That's a curious name, miss. Yes, she replied. But it meant more than it said. It meant, when it was given, that whoever had this house could want nothing else, that they must have been easily satisfied in those days, I should think. But don't loiter, boy. Though she called me boy so often, and with a carelessness that was far from complimentary, she was of about my own age. She seemed much older than I, of course, being a girl, beautiful and self-possessed. And she was as scornful of me as if she had been one and twenty and a queen. We went into the house by a side door. The great front entrance had two chains across it outside, and the first thing I noticed was that the passages were all dark, and that she had left a candle burning there. She took it up, and we went through more passages and up a staircase, and still it was all dark, and only the candle lighted us. At last, we came to the door of a room, and she said, Go in. I answered, more in shyness than politeness, After you, miss. To this she returned, Don't be ridiculous, boy. I'm not going in. And scornfully walked away, and what was worse, took the candle with her. Good night. <laughs>